But every disaster has a psychological impact. People are traumatized or re-traumatized. And, you know, it's it just has always been a bit of a surprise to me that over the decades previous of humanitarian assistance, very little was done to think about how do you care for someone psychologically after they've experienced this type of event. So that I just can be. This is another episode of a special series called Enough for All of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen. This series sheds light on 75 years of an NGO called CWS. My name is Mirit Bloom and I welcome you to another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Hey everybody, this is yet another, you know, episode of our podcast um, about church world service. And I'm really delighted to have a, a former colleague uh, of mine, Rick Augsburger, uh, who was actually my boss many, many years ago. Um, Rick, could you please introduce yourself and tell, you know, what you're doing at the moment and what you did when you were working for church world service a, a number of years ago? Sure. Thanks, Maurice. Um, my name is Rick Augsburger, and uh, currently I'm uh, a founding member of an organization called the Cantera Group, which focuses on providing primarily psychological support and organizational development support to NGOs and uh, global uh, agencies. So I've been uh, with Cantera now since, uh, I guess it was 2007. Uh, but I'm also now beginning to transition out of that. Uh, we have a new leadership team in place. And uh, so we've really kind of backed away from day-to-day -day management. Um, so I put on my old Mennonite tool belt and uh, I'm fixing up real estate properties with a business partner of mine and uh, still engaging with Kintera, uh, you know, as, as a advisor on a regular basis. But um, yeah, I, I came to Church World Service in 1996, uh, and at that point was the director of what was then called the Emergency Response Program, and continued in that role until 2005, and then served as uh, what they used to call deputy director for two years until 2007. Um, but I uh, first heard about Church World Service probably when I was about nine years old. Uh, my sister and her husband uh, used to organize crop walks. And uh, so they organized a crop walk in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and I participated in that. And that was my first awareness of church world service. And then I totally forgot about it, <laughs> unfortunately, mm -hmm. until uh, I saw their uh, opening for the emergency response director in 1996. And, uh, yeah. And, and what is your background, uh, Rick? I mean, um, I, I guess it had to do with emergency response um, or, or not yeah yeah well my my original background actually is business and uh, from there I actually lived in East Africa for a number of years working in microcredit uh, work and I always thought that I wanted to work in small business development I had run a business as a, as a young person had a great experience with that went on and got my degree and then decided I wanted to help other small businesses and started with microcredit 
but that was um, my introduction into disaster response as well, because I was doing microcredit work in a refugee camp uh, in most, well, it was Mozambican refugees who had come into Southern Tanzania. And as I was exposed to that experience in the refugee camp and saw the humanitarian relief that was happening there, I decided that's what I wanna do. I actually wanna be involved more in the emergency response than in the, the small business or microcredit development uh, sector. So I came back to the States and uh, got a job as uh, assistant director for Mennonite Disaster Service, which primarily does reconstruction after disasters uh, only in the US and uh, did that for a number of years. And then through that also became reacquainted with Church World Service because uh, Mennonite Disaster Service worked very closely with CWS domestically uh, in the domestic disaster response. So got to know CWS, got to know the organization again, and then applied for the job in 96 and started off. So. Yeah, and, and when you came in, you made a lot of uh, changes within the emergency response program and, and you know, brought, I think brought it really to a next level. Um, if, you, if you think back about that, uh, you know, to that period, what are you most proud of? And, and can you maybe illustrate that also with an example in, in what you did, you know, in terms of the emergency response within CWS? Yeah, well, you know, it was interesting because CWS had a very, uh, I'll say somewhat defined role in the domestic disaster uh, arena or sector. And that was to help communities organize after disaster so that the churches primarily in the community could assist people with unmet needs. So really assist those who after uh, FEMA monies and other types of resources still did not have what they needed to be able to either be back in their home or uh, you know, be gainfully employed or um, even in some cases feed themselves. So CWS was working with uh, the people who had the most significant need in the community. And they were doing that through rallying the church community to provide resources for those individuals. And that could range from you know, reconstruction of their house, and then we'd pull in the Mennonites or the Church of the Brethren. Uh, could range from uh, you know, education for the kids, and we'd go to the Red Cross to get support for assignment to schools, et cetera. So CWS was kind of really a community organizer at that point. But we never really developed a system in order to do that. It was kind of an ad hoc response each time. And when I came to 475 in 96, we had one computer in the emergency response program. And we did have email, uh, but you know there was really nothing happening online. There was nothing mm -hmm. on, on the internet, et cetera. So one of the first things I did is really pushed us to get teched up mm -hmm. and to get more computers to be able to begin to use the initial, uh, you know, uh, experience of the internet for information sharing, for uh, liaising with the other disaster response organizations and using that tool also to, in, in the community organizing process. Mm -hmm. Before it was all phone, you know, and a little bit of email, but we really started to pull together a website for a disaster where different agencies could plug in and things like that. Uh, so, you know, that was, I would say, uh, coming out of the, the Midwest floods, which I think happened in, oh goodness, 
93, 94, there were still recovery efforts going on in, in that major flood in the Midwest. And so we applied some of this new technology and, and really tried to develop a system so that we could replicate that system disaster to disaster. And I would say that's probably one of the most significant things that we did. Um, and in doing that, we became more efficient. We, got a, we, we gained a higher profile in the domestic uh, disaster response community, and we became more effective. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, then led to better fundraising, more resources, et cetera. Um, I think one of, the, one of the places, to give you an example, where, where it really moved to another level was we were doing that through the entire program, other than the staff at 475, uh, mm -hmm. was a group of volunteers spread around the country that were trained in community organizing, and we would deploy them to the disaster uh, to, to begin the community organizing process. And that would happen immediately after the disaster. Then we would always carry on for the long term. So we, we would be in most disaster locations for maybe two, three years, if it was a major event, even longer. And um, I can't remember what year this happened, but I think it was in about 99, might've been 2000. Uh, we rallied the denominations to provide uh, financial resources to hire 10 full-time disaster, what we call disaster response liaisons. So now we had a group of full-time people going to these communities, still working with the volunteer network that we had across the United States, but get, being there as a full-time representative of Church World Service gave them a little bit more gravitas in, in the situation. And we were able through that then to build really strong relationships with FEMA because they also had a group of full-time staff that worked the same way we did. And actually we would pair one of our person with a FEMA rep in a location uh, for, for a year. And, and so that really changed the dynamics of the program. What I was always impressed with and at, the, at that time, you know, I was overseas, is also the, uh, you know, the kits, the, the health kits, and, uh, you know, which could be used uh, during an emergency. Was that already in place before you came, or is this something that you developed with your team? You know, the, the blankets the kit, and the... Yeah, the kit program was in place. Uh, the blanket program was in place. The blanket program was probably the most significant uh, material resource you know, that CWS had at the time. What we did was we, we redesigned the kit program. So we changed the health kit, we changed the school kit, we introduced the cleanup kit um, for after floods and tornadoes. Uh, and we, again, tried to standardize it. We tried to, to brand it in a way that made it more exciting for people who wanted to contribute and more useful for the recipients who received the kit. So, we did really expand the kit program, um, but it was in existence mm. when it came. In fact, the blankets and the kits were the primary thing that Church World Service in, did in uh, disaster response. Mm -hmm. Community organizing was second. And then as we developed the kit program and tried to commercialize it a little bit more and then staffed the community organizing uh, responsibility, that's when things really began to, to gel, I would say. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Right. On the, Maurice, I'll say one thing on the international side. Um, 
when I came, the international humanitarian work was being carried out by the area desks. And the emergency response program, although it involved in that process, was really um, in, in the background. You know, mm -hmm. we were supporting resources, we were supporting material assistance that the area desks then were managing and distributing. Um, so we, we really pushed to say, no, let's centralize that because what was happening was we were doing it differently in every area. And that's okay because every area was unique, but there needed to be some standardization so that people could say, we know what church world service brings to the table in, in disaster response. So over a number of years, we did standardize that. And rather than the area desk being the lead in the humanitarian assistance, the emergency response program became the lead. We still worked with the area directors, but we were now actually interfacing directly with the communities or the partners or the staff in some cases when there was an emergency. So that was another big shift. Um, and then, of course, we had the opportunity to work together after the tsunami. Uh, and mm -hmm. when you were in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would like to go, go back what you said in terms of standardization, because I think that's really an important contribution that you made during your tenure, because um, Church World Service was also, I think, instrumental in the development of the sphere standards, isn't it? And, yes. and uh, can you tell a little bit, you know, how that went and what you did there with your team? Sure, yeah, the, the SPHERE standards are a set of standards for international humanitarian assistance and basically lay out all types of what are considered recommended guidelines for everything from feeding to shelter to health to you know a number of different things. One of the things that didn't exist in the international humanitarian sector at that time was that kind of code of standardization. Um, one of the challenges in the international uh, humanitarian sector at that time was the agencies that were there were basically doing everything. So it's different from the domestic sector. And, and this remains to this day in the US disaster response sector, people do a very specific task. Red Cross does shelters, Salvation Army does feeding, Baptist does feeding, MDS does rebuilding, Church World Service does community organizing. So you had a very specific task. Whereas internationally, Church World Service or Save the Children or Mercy Corps or World Vision would come in and do everything uh, in most cases. That began to change as the sphere standards came into existence and organizations began to choose a specific sector that they would prioritize. Uh, so it just began to, to build a different structure that was, I think, very helpful within the UN system as well because the UN system te technically in most disasters was kind of the overarching umbrella. And then the NGOs and others would fit into that. So the sphere standards helped us figure out where we fit and what we should do and how it needed to be done and what the standards should be. That uh, deserves really a big applause because it was, you know, until today, it's really, really still very important and rightly so. Rick, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, that the first time you and I really worked closely together was after the tsunami hit in 2004, uh, although before <laughs> actually many things had gone uh, on already in, in Indonesia as well. But uh, that, that's, that was a game changer, of course, that, that uh, particular period. Um, you know, what I really appreciated 
having to lead our the church world service response in indonesia was um you know the way you and donna uh, supported me and the team uh, during that work and i think um a lot what you what you were used in in uh, trying to you know support me and and uh, your listening skills etc that's something that you learned i think in 2001 as well right as after 9 11 so can you maybe uh, share with with us you know what 9 11 did for church world service and then um you know especially the the post uh attack response that the church world service came up with yeah well, thanks, Maurice. No, yeah, 9-11 in 2001 uh, was, a, was a real, I'll, I'll say, pivoting point for emergency response, um, and, and for me personally. Uh, probably the most significant thing that I experienced, and I, I think this later translated into, you know, our responses to the tsunami or to Hurricane Mitch or uh, some of the other major uh, emergencies, was that prior to September 11. The entire uh, emergency response mechanism, whether it was international or domestic, was focused on material assistance. So it was, you know, providing shelter, providing food, providing water, providing the things that people had lost materially. And the, the entire structure was set up to do that. What happened after September 11 was, uh, you know, when New York. Uh, experienced that the World Trade Centers uh, fell, the emergency response community in the US struggled because they were attempting to apply the old model. They were attempting to provide material assistance. I even remember on September 11, late in the day, I got a call and somebody asked me if I was sending blankets to the World Trade Center. And we did because they were helpful for the first responders. But that mindset was we need to send material assistance. That's what's needed. It took us a couple of days and we realized this event was totally different. And material needs were not the major need. The major need was psychological. It was the traumatic impact of the event, the major loss of life in such a short period of time. And so we began to rethink our entire approach and we began to think about, yeah, material assistance and, and dealing with material loss is important in any disaster, except for September 11, <laughs> but in most disasters. But every disaster has a psychological impact. People are traumatized or re-traumatized. And you know, it's, it just has always been a bit of a surprise to me that over the decades previously of humanitarian assistance, very little was done to think about how do you care for someone psychologically after they've experienced this type of event. September 11 changed that. And the psychological impact of disaster what's called disaster mental health, all of those things really now move to the forefront. They were no longer an afterthought. Uh, they kind of followed or trickled in after material assistance and reconstruction. They were now part of the forefront. And it was, it was psychological support, not only for the communities that had been impacted, but psychological support for the disaster response personnel. Uh, that was never addressed either. So we really started to look at ways that we could support the people from a psychological perspective, as well as support the material needs that existed in an emergency. And in the tsunami, Maurice, that, that was a challenging one. I mean, that was a very traumatic event. 
it was a very short-term emergency in terms of its initial impact. Many people lost their lives very quickly. There was massive destruction that took place very quickly. It's not a long drawn out event like a flood or something like that. It was, you know, it was instantaneous almost. So uh, we tried to make sure that we were supporting you and your team in Indonesia, who were also many, many of them personally affected by the tsunami. Uh, and at the same time, uh, probing for ways to see how we could couple our typical assistance with support around the psychological impact of the event. Um, and I think, you know, the needs materially were so, so evident and so clear after the tsunami, it was hard to kind of keep both in balance, but we always tried to keep, you know, the psychological part of it as part of the total response. Um, and we did more of that actually, we actually provided some psychological support to other agencies that were, that were responding uh, through staff care type training, self-care training, things like that. Uh, but sorry, long answer to your question, but the major shift out of September 11 was the acknowledgement that there are psychological impacts in disaster events, and it's very important to address those as well. Um, I, I think what you were able to do, uh, Rick, is, is really make that um, an important element of the Church World Service response in, in um, disasters that happened after that. Tsunami is a, is a big one, Haiti later, um, you know, and, and then not only for, as you mentioned, for people that were affected, but also for staff to look at staff care. And I think that's something that we are still benefiting from you know today where as an organization as a world we're trying to deal with COVID you know racial justice uh, name it is you know continually ask yourself the question as an organization okay yes we know that we are trying to give support to people who are affected but how is it with our staff and and now you know when people uh, st our colleagues working uh, often remotely you know, the mental health aspect is, is maybe even more important than ever. So, so uh, yeah, I, I think we are still benefiting from those uh, lessons that we learned uh, at that time, where you worked also closely with the university, right, in terms of, it was not like, okay, let's do this. It's, you know, I, I think um, what we always try to do is link it up with the science, you know, what are, what is the, what, what is the research, what is that, uh, teaching us and how can we then use that knowledge yeah. in our programs to make it practical. Right, exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, let, let, me, let me ask you a question. If you, um, if you, have to, if you think back about your time uh, with CWS, if you have to name one colleague or a partner or a partner organization or a supporter of CWS who best embodies of what uh, CWS is about, according to you, who will you name and why? That's a tough question, Maurice. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, 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 uh, I did not promise to make it yeah. easy for you. <laughs> no, the, the, there are many that I could name, um, but the one I will name is Rodney Page. And, and here are the reasons. One, and Rodney Page you know, is, is uh, one of the former executive directors uh, exactly. of Church World Service, yeah. 
Rodney Page preceded uh, John. And he came to church world service at a time when church world service was um, in very challenging, a very challenging situation, I'll call it. And, you know, there are a number of things about Rodney. Uh, he didn't have international experience when he came to the job. He, he didn't have that international development and humanitarian response experience. But what he had was he, he understood the denominations. He was known within the denominations. He understood that, that heritage of the church world service. And what he did, and this is why I'm naming him, is he was the person who was able to separate church world service into its own organization. Previously, we were a committee of the National Council of Churches, and that was fraught with many challenges. And as the world changed and things moved forward, it was clear that CWS needed to be independent, needed to be its own 501c3, its own registered MGO, and Rodney was able to make that happen. Now, does that embody the spirit of church world service? Does that embody, you know, uh, what we are or have been as an organization? Not necessarily, uh, but it was so important that that happened. Had that not happened, I don't think church world service would be here today. Um, and Rodney did it in a way, uh, there were some tough moments, no doubt, but he did it in a way where church world ser service was able to come out stronger on the other side. We were able, I think, to have more meaningful relationships at that time with our partners and our denominations. It, it took some time, but it established, you know, really a, a new uh, future for CWS. Um, and it didn't, you know, disconnect or, or disenfranchise the denominations. It created a different relationship. So I think the way he did that was masterful um, and was just ultimately important for the future of the organization. You know, if if I look at the organization, you know, that Churchful Service was established in 1946 as a U.S. organization, Christian organization that tried to work ecumenically. Um, you know, together we can do more than apart. I, if I look at its growth, um, you know, I think they are moving. Of this organization is moving towards being a global organization and where interfaith is you know, kind of core. If you hear me say this, uh, you know, um, yeah, what is your opinion in terms of, of my observation? Do you agree? If so, you know, why? If not, or even partially not or yes, uh, why? So, um, yeah, no, I, I do agree, Maurice. And that was one of the things that brought me to CWS in the first place is I felt like, and I still feel like today, the church world service has a tremendous opportunity in front of it. Uh, and it has a unique heritage that very few organizations have. I mean, if you look at the NGO sector, there are very, very few organizations that come from an interdenominational heritage. There are some, but none who focus really only on refugees, development, humanitarian assistance, advocacy, et cetera. CWS, I think, still has a very unique position. And I think the global aspect of church world service and continuing to be a global actor uh, in, a, in a, uh, opportunity, I'll call it, that has 
interfaith connections is extremely important. And again, one of the few organizations that can really do that. Um, one of the things that I always found interesting, if you think back to the history of Church World Service, in the uh, early 70s, Church World Service was actually the largest NGO in the United States, involved in humanitarian assistance and refugees, et cetera. And they did that through the Food for Peace program. Church World Service staff actually helped write that PL 480 legislation. And we were the biggest proponent, the largest distributor of Food for Peace during that time. Then what happened? The World Visions, the Mercy Corps, the Save the Children's came along and basically blew right past us. I think it'd be important to look at why that happened and how it happened um, because it took us, well, we still haven't to this day, frankly, caught up with some of those larger NGOs. So what did, what did we miss? What steps did we miss and why did we miss them? And I would guess that looking back on that might establish some interesting uh, guidelines as we look into the future. We're moving forward, there's no doubt. I mean, I'm not as close to CWS as I once was, but I, I still see tremendous opportunity. And I think the global aspect and the interfaith aspect that you mentioned, Maurice, are really important aspects. One of the challenges I see is, you know, uh, the denominational constituency, I believe, is still important to CWS. But we, and I'm speaking to the choir here, we have to develop an authentic, engaged, broader constituency. Uh, and how do we do that? And I think over the years since you've been there, Maurice, Church World Service has made great strides in doing that. Uh, but we need to continue doing that and do that in a way that uh, creates a constituency that is global and rep has interfaith representation. Uh, and as we always say, you know, we, we've got to have the youth involved. How we do that as an organization, I think, is still a bit of a puzzle. Um, but to me, we have an opportunity to do that that few similar NGOs have. What do you like to say or what, what do you like to wish for CWS? You know, John had, I think, a, a strong legacy of Church World Service. So yeah, so John, you're, you're referring to John McCullough, who's president John. of, of uh, Church World Service for the last 20 years. Yeah. So, so 2021 represents a, a leadership transition. Um, it represents a significant number of challenges that we're all facing, uh, the global pandemic, uh, the economic challenges related to that here in the U.S. and globally, um, racial justice issues are at the forefront. There are a number of very significant issues that are coming together at once. And, you know, we, we've experienced them in 2020, but they will remain in 2021. So my hope for Church World Service is that there is a, um, you know, smooth transition to new leadership and, uh, that there is a renewed, I think, energy and desire, if you will, to, to step up, to step up and be a leading organization around some of the global challenges that we're facing right now. And to do that in a way that, that links our denominational heritage to, as I said earlier, a broader and, and really authentic expanding constituency. Um, how, how CWS does that? 
I'm not quite sure. <laughs> but that's my hope for CWS, that it can step into that area of opportunity uh, and create um, the relationships, receive the resources, and conduct the programming that can be useful in all of those areas. The, 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 you know, the global challenges that we're facing right now. Um, so easier said than done. Thank you so much, uh, Rick. Is, is there, yeah, any anything else that you would like to uh, share, or or I could? Yeah, I mean, again, I'll, I'll just say, you know, I've I've been somewhat disconnected from church world service over the last couple of years. I I read about it, I hear about it, I understand it in the context of the other NGOs that I work with. Uh, but I will say, I think I think what's happened over the last ten years, some of the um, changes that have been made, some of the areas of focus that have been chosen, I think really um, create a, a pretty significant stepping stone for the next chapter. Um, so I think well done. You know, I think that this last 10 to 15 years, I think well done there. I know there have been challenges uh, and challenging times, but I feel like church world service in terms of its opportunity and the foundation that it has is in a really good place. Um, again, acknowledging that there are challenges, but uh, the, the, the biggest challenge I see is how do you take this place, this foundation that you have now in 2020, and how do you really then maximize that to make an impact uh, in both directions, to the people who support us and to the people who we work with around the world? Uh, so I, you know, I, I've always been an optimist. I think Church World Service has tremendous opportunities. Uh, a solid future and uh it's going to take some heavy lifting but uh the path is is there yeah thank you well thank you uh, rick and and really thanks for sharing your your experiences and and uh, i i think it um you know the listener will really uh realize the enormous contribution that you made when working for us for, for church world service and, and many, many thanks for everything you did. Thanks Maurice. Thank you for the opportunity to partic participate in your podcast. And uh, it's been good to reconnect with you and see you again. And hopefully when this pandemic is done, we'll be able to get together and play pool. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> good. Thanks. Do you see you? Do you see me? Will you be the eyes so that we all can be? Thank you for listening to Walk, Talk, Listen. Please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you want to know more about Churchful Service, please go to cwsglobal.org.